Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning. There we go. You guys caffeinated? Don't lie, you're all caffeinated. If you're not, I caffeinated for you. All right. Um, it's good to be here with you. We're jumping into... Uh, the fourth chapter uh, of the book of Romans uh, to, together today. We, we're trying to do a good job of lining out kind of the, the method to the madness and what's happening in this book. So before we read the entire chapter four uh, out loud, it, it might be helpful for us first to remember what Paul has been writing about in the sections of scripture right before this that lead us into where we're at today. In the third chapter, uh, the word faith is used 11 times over and over and over again in the text. Uh, in eight of those usages are in uh, the last nine verses. So Paul has gone to great lengths to, uh, to make it really clear for us that justification, being declared righteous in the eyes of God, salvation is a gift of grace that comes through faith alone. That's the only way Faith alone in Christ alone is the only way to be saved. There's no other way. There's no other path. There's no other doorway. There's no other gate to be made right before God. Uh, and Paul's done a, a lot to kind of show how the irreligious person and the religious person navigates his words. The irreligious crowd tends to believe that they don't need to be made right with God. Or, or maybe they declare, well, I'm not as bad as that person or that person or that person. Uh, so God will kind of just kind of give me a, a, a pass. I don't really need faith. I'm just not as bad as some people. So we're going to kind of have a, a, a scale here and I'll be okay. Where the religious crowd tends to think, well, you know, my tribe, my affiliations, my denominations, my good works, the, the works of the law that I try and pay attention to, those are going to be good enough to just kind of balance the scales in my favor, and those are going to save me. And Paul says to both groups, none of those things will work for you. Again, the only way is faith. Since righteousness comes only through faith in uh, Jesus Christ, uh, we saw in the text last week uh, that Paul kind of a a asked this question of us, if it's all faith that saves you, there's no works, there's no thing that you do, there's no elevating yourself to a position to make God want you, if it's all of faith, then what do we do with our boasting, uh, with our ability to claim that we've done something great? And he answered that emphatically at the end of three in the text that we dealt with last week, boasting is excluded from the heart of those who are saved. Since our justification is in faith alone by no merit or work that we have done, there's just no room for boasting. It destroys unity. It destroys our witness. It destroys our ability to show what Jesus has done. If you're going to boast, boast only in Jesus, it says. So the thesis statement for Paul is this, the, the blanket statement. Salvation comes through faith and faith alone. It is the only way to be saved, faith alone and Christ alone. With this in full view, chapter four, we're going to read the entirety of it. Paul's going to kind of go back to the courtroom thing. And what he's going to do is kind of call an exhibit A and exhibit B to be uh, witnesses to prove his thesis that faith alone is what saves. So remember, Paul's been uh, opposed by uh, nationalistic works righteousness Jews a lot. And each step of the ways he's preached so far or written in the book of Romans, what he's done is he has anticipated their pushback and, and he's kind of spoken against how they're going to push against him in the text. So th this chapter is going to be that. He's going to see that they're going to push against faith alone as the way to justification. And, and he's going to speak against the way that they will push against it. 
Now, one of the things that, that I think makes this text really helpful for us is we need to understand the doctrine of faith alone is not a new theology. What he's going to show us, which is helpful for our hearts, is that faith is the only way to be saved in the New Testament, but it's also the only way that you are saved in the Old Testament as well, which is a valuable thing for us to understand because I think we get a little bit confused there. So let's dig into the text. Again, we're reading the entire fourth chapter, um, so stick with me here. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we, uh, shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? This means uh, by, by works that he's done. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David, who also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That's what I'm praying that the Spirit would just press on us. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the uh, circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised that's a lot of that word um, verse 13 for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. In hope, we believed against hope that we should become, uh, that he should become the father of many nations as, as had been told. So shall your offspring be. 19. He did not weaken in faith when considering his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. That's a harsh way to call someone old. You're as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word, it's counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from de the dead Jesus our Lord who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Historically, 
religious people are some hard-headed people. Uh, us involved in that statement. Um, not all, but many of the Jewish people back then are the ones, and specifically who Paul's trying to speak to here, are the ones who demanded that Jesus be crucified. So Jesus challenged the way uh, that they saw things in his day. He challenged the, the beliefs of the Jewish people, the, the faith in themselves, their, their, their belief that they were righteous, and they demanded his life for it. So he challenged what they, they, what they put their hope in, their idols, and they uh, demanded that he die for it. So in thinking of this, we have a cancel culture right now. Their cancel culture was a lot more savage than ours, though. Like we want to oppose people and destroy their, their, their voice and anything around them. They wanted their very breath, and this is what happened to Jesus. This same religious crowd, proud and heritage and in their deep-rooted ways, they're internally, they're, they're struggling with Paul's concept of faith alone. They can't get past thinking that, that Christ took away something from their people and their heritage and, and, and all the things that they had done by saying faith is the only way that's saved. They couldn't understand well, how, how do all the things that I believe in my family, how do, how do we still, how, how are we still special and valuable in all of this? If you're saying that none of the things that we've ever done have actually mattered before, God, they're, they're just struggling. How are you going to tell me it's faith alone? Look at our lines. Look at what we've done. Look at, look at Abraham. Look at all the descendants. So imagine the people here, him saying faith is the only way to be saved. And they kind of say, well, okay, Polly. Okay. I, I hear you. I hear your theory. But what about Abraham and King David? You're saying faith alone in Christ alone. But, but, but what about Abraham way back then? What about David? Abraham was considered the father of of the Jews, and Abraham and uh, King David was considered the greatest king of the Jews, and both of them lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever on earth. What they would be asking is, how are those great leaders of our people, those cornerstones of our faith, how are they to be saved by faith in this carpenter from Bethlehem who died on a Roman cross, who they never met, they couldn't pick him out of a lineup, they, they really have no idea who the actual person is, how could they have faith in that person that hadn't even come yet? How does this faith alone work? And what they believed is they believed that they had Paul trapped in this moment, that he had to concede one of two things, that the, the doctrine of faith alone meant that first, either Abraham and King David were just never saved, which that would have been a problem with the Jewish people, or they believed that they had pressed Paul into a spot where he had to say, well, they were saved, but just in a different way than you would be saved. And they kind of go like, aha, Paul, gotcha. Like, you, you can't do that. So as we read the text, what we essentially see is this court language where Paul calls to the stand uh, using scripture in evidence, Abraham and David, to see if they were saved in a different way th than faith. If they were saved in some other method outside of the way that we are saved, and this is pretty helpful for us, I think, if we stick with it, even though it's a longer text. R.C. Sproul says this, the dominant theology in our country tends to see a strong disjunction between salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament. The Old Testament is viewed as the age of the law, and the New Testament is viewed as the age of grace. Therefore, God's way of salvation deferred in the two covenants, they would think. 
Paul refutes that idea right here, and he brings forward as an example the, the doctrine of justification by faith, not from the, the, the New Testament example, but instead he brings somebody from the Old Testament, Father Abraham, to show an example still of justification by faith. Sproul was commenting on probably what we have struggled with a little bit. There's a lot of confusion, I think, in our minds if we were asked just this simple question. And if everything's been confusing so far, here's the question that we probably get tripped up on. How does an Old, per- Old Testament person get saved? How does that work? Before Jesus, didn't even know who Jesus is, didn't know anything about him or anything like that. I mean, the, the, the Jews were looking for some, some uh, bad-to-the-bone warrior to come kill everybody. That's who they were looking for. So how, how does faith work for people in the Old Testament when they didn't even know who Jesus would, would be? How does that work? And our, our minds tend to, to think, well, since it's before Jesus on the cross and they didn't know who it was, that there, there had to be like some, some uh, Old Testament caveat that was different than, than now, some previous way of salvation. That's what Sproul was talking about. We think of the Old Testament as the, as the time of law and the New Testament as the time of grace. So a person may answer, how is an Old Testament person to be saved by going, well, it was... Um, it, um, so there's blood, animal, like a cow died or a pigeon or, or a goat thing. Yep, animal sacrifice, that was part. And in um, law, they, they, you have to pay attention to the law and probably like have a general belief in God. That, that's how. Right? We tend to struggle. I, I, don't, I don't know. And so generally we'll answer the question of a mishmash of sacrifice and law and, and belief in God. That'll be our answer. What Paul wanted to blow their minds with and ours as well is salvation in the Old Testament occurred in the exact same manner as salvation in the New Testament. Let that sink in. Old Testament Moses was justified the exact same way as the New Testament Mary and Martha would have been. If if we want to put this in in other terms, uh, Adam and Eve's son Abel would be saved by the exact same manner that I hope my son Abel is saved thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. There is no different way. There's no different justification. There is no different form of righteousness. No matter where through the human course of history you exist, you're saved in one way and one way alone. Faith in the only person that actually has righteousness, Jesus A common misunderstanding was that Father Abraham was justified by works of obedience, that he did certain things. This is what Paul calls works of the flesh, that his works of the flesh were so righteous and so good that he was able to actually just kind of put himself and leverage a situation to, to be holy in the eyes of God. To understand why they believed that, we need to understand a little bit of Abraham's story. Abraham left his country, where he was from, his place of origin, to go to a land that God promised him. Right? He says, hey, Abraham, I want you to go, and I'm going to prosper you in this other place. So Abraham decided to leave his home to go to another place, listening to and obeying God by, by going. This seems like a strong move. I left everything I ever knew to listen to you. That seems like a strong work of righteousness. Abraham believed God's promise that he would have many descendants, even though him and his wife were crazy old and they had no kids. He still believed God. Then Abraham also had circumcision. It was given as a physical sign, and they would consider, well, that's a work. I mean, if you're an older dude and you let somebody do that to you, like that's a pretty strong choice. You should, you should probably have righteousness if you do that. And then Abraham was also willing to sacrifice his own son to obey God, which is probably their most weighty thing that they saw he did. 
even though God didn't make him actually uh, sacrifice his son, his son was his most prized possession. It's what they'd waited all of their life. He had goats and he had land and he had milk and he had honey. He had everything that he could have ever wanted except for his son. And when he gets the son, he's even willing to lay that down. And these seem like impressive works. It's not hard to see why Old Testament people or the Jews of that time thought all of that impressive stuff that he did somehow got him saved. That his decision to obey God brought him righteousness. And what Paul does is he calls us to remember Genesis 15, 6 in the text. And what he's doing by going back to Genesis is he's going, hey guys, there's not two different systems. I'm going to recall the the earliest moments and the moments now. I'm going to say that the method never changed. Genesis 15, 6 says this, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Listen to that. And he believed not he obeyed, not he circumcised, not he left, not he was willing to, to, to sacrifice his son, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what Paul is drawing our mind to. He goes, what does the scripture say? Not what do you think, or how do you feel, what, or what is everyone saying? He goes, no, let's go back to the very beginning. Paul uses the word, and we're going to, to maybe nerd out for just a second. He uses the, the word logizdomai in the text, and it's translated as, as counted or credited. Counted or credited, and he uses this a ton of times all over chapter 4. And what this credited word is, it's an accounting term meaning to, to credit to an uh, account, to give a new status to an account that was not there before. So we can kind of think maybe in terms of this, when you lease to buy a house, say you're living in a house for, for, for two years and it's a lease to buy agreement and you have made payments for 24 months and none of that counts towards your mortgage at all. It's just all been rent. There's no status in your account. There's nothing happening there. Then all of a sudden, two years in, you go, I want to buy that house. What happens? They transfer all of that rent payment that you made before into your mortgage. There's a new status that you didn't have before, but it's now granted to you. These are the kind of words that Paul's using. A new status is brought into your account that you did not have before and you did not earn on your own. This is what he's saying about how we are saved. It was not that Abraham obeyed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's not that Abraham did some amazing work and then God counted it to him as righteousness. No, Abraham believed, and it was logizdomai. It was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness, and we need to push further. It wasn't that Abraham believed and that was actually his work. No, his faith did not make him deserve righteousness. It was his faith that caused God to count him as righteous. The word says that Abraham had faith and this was then counted to him as righteousness, meaning uh, God treated Abraham, hear me, as, as though he was living a righteous life, even though he was not. Why? Because of faith. He's, in his account, there's no righteousness. He puts his faith in the Redeemer to come. God credits righteousness to his account. He is a sinner and God calls him just. He is imperfect and unholy and God calls him perfect in Christ. It's credited to him. This is uh, some of the words we used in the other texts earlier on. Um, (coughs) Sorry. The reality that a believer can be just and still a sinner. It's credited to them. 
this may seem like splitting hairs a little bit. Well, why are we doing the credited thing and, and, it, and it's not a work and, and even faith isn't the work? Like, why, why are we doing all of this? Because we need to understand the nature of salvation. Let's look back at the text. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you work two weeks and your boss comes up to you and be like, hey man, I got a gift for you. Like, homie, that ain't a gift. I worked for that. This, this is what they're talking about here. And to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I did no work and God justifies me. David then speaks of this as a blessing, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. This has been like my prayer and my hope for you and me, that you would feel this in your guts. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I have lawless deeds and so do you. What a blessing. Those are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. What a blessing it is. This is meant to cause awe in your heart. The point is if Abraham got to take credit for the righteousness that was credited to his account through a decision or action or work or thing, then all of a sudden what happens? Abraham becomes the hero. He becomes the victor. He gets to brag to to you and, and me and God of like, you know, I did like 28% of the work in my, you know, salvation. No, no big deal. Just earned a lot of that righteousness on my own. The goal is for us not to take any credit, any responsibility. If Abraham did the work, hear this again, in the blessing of having your sins forgiven, then salvation wouldn't be a gift. It would be a thing he worked his butt off and was given. See, it would be wages for work done or compensation for good behavior. But verse 5 says, to the one who does not work but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Hear this. This is our God. The whole world's yelling. It's not fair. There should be more ways. I should get to do what I want. Our God justifies the ungodly. He credits to them a righteousness that is not theirs. His faith is the instrument for Abraham. It's the instrument that allows Christ's righteousness to be credited to him. Then Paul throws in the account of King David who also believed this. David, with all of his flaws, with this clear understanding of his own heart and his own sin and his own shortcomings, declares in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. This is what we were just talking about. David knew what it meant to sin. And he knew the beauty of having a God that covered his imperfection. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one who God does not count their sin against him. He doesn't say blessed is the guy who, who doesn't sin. Because as soon as someone says that, you're, you're, if you're not lying to yourself, you're going, I can't connect with that statement. I can't do that. He doesn't say blessed is the guy who works it off. And if you connect with that, you need to understand that you're putting yourself in the position of a slave for the rest of your life because I've got to work and work and work and work and work to make sure God doesn't hate me. No, he says, church, look at the unimaginable blessing that God offers. What a blessing it is to know that you are not clean or righteous 
What a blessing it is to know that you have fallen short of God's rule and his perfection and his reign. What a blessing it is to have all of that be true and you don't have to cover any of it or hide or lie about it. Why? Because the blessing of Christ's righteousness is logizdomai. It's, it's credited to your account even though you didn't earn it. This is the good news of accredited righteousness that you did not earn, an imputed righteousness, what theologians call an alien righteousness. It's foreign to you and it gets credited to your account through Jesus and Jesus alone. Friends, on a heart level, Paul is not only uh, saying uh, that we don't earn our righteousness, he's asking us to slow down and feel the reality that that's really good news to you and me. While the world may think that God is harsh, a wrath-filled being who's trying to steal their fun and destroy everything in their life, God is the God who justifies imperfect, ungodly people. He credits righteousness that people do not possess into their account when we're not even close to righteous or clean on our own. This means God is rich in mercy, not rich in unfair wrath. You can make a better case to say God is almost unfair in giving righteousness to people that do not earn it than than to say that he is unfair in being too mean and too harsh. God is the God who justifies the ungodly through his son because he gives righteousness to those who don't have it in themselves. Again, he hands it out not on the basis of your talent or your knowledge or your race or your hard work, but he instead hands it out through his loving kindness to those who believe in the Redeemer, Christ, his son. Again, what's the hope? This should make praise erupt in the hearts of men and women. Oh, that you would do that. Oh, that I could see myself clearly and still stand before you. Oh, God, that you would bless me in a way that I never deserved that you would bless me in our righteousness of one who is perfect when I'm so far from perfect, that you wouldn't lash out on me, that you would instead adopt me with a gift of faith through your son that I didn't even, I didn't, you even gave me the faith to believe. Oh, the endless love that you have for me. Worship and praise is meant to erupt. And every time you try and reach your hands in and go, I, I earned a little bit of it. Paul's trying to smack your hand and say, let go of that. It's going to hurt you if you take it. Don't do it. Sproul, again, helpful to us in this. The only difference, and hold on, listen to what he's he's saying. We've got it on the screen. The only difference between our justification and Abraham's is that Abraham looked forward to the promised one. He trusted in the promised coming of the Redeemer, whereas we look backwards to the work of Jesus. The only difference is the time frame of where the object of our faith is. But the object is still the same. Abraham had put his faith in the Redeemer who hadn't came into human history yet. It was, that's, a, that's another faith, man. Uh, I've got to believe in it. Like, I can't even, I can't even like, put uh, a, a, a picture of who this is going to be. I don't know who it is. Like, you don't have these, these, these crazy drawings of perm Jesus and be like, oh, that's him. Like, he has no idea of who it's going to be, but he puts his faith in a Redeemer to come. And we put our faith in the Redeemer that we know has already come, both of those being Christ. Yet both of us are credited righteousness from the exact same believer. Again, this means the Old Testament Israelite and the New Testament disciple and a believer in Columbia, Missouri in 2022 all get righteousness from the exact same spot, Jesus, through faith. Our justification all comes in the same manner. His righteousness 
Through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone are we saved. Now, there seemed to still be confusion about circumcision. If you didn't see that, he mentioned it 80 times in the text. Many believed that the person was justified at the moment that they got that done, right? Not saved, not justified, ow, justified. Paul says, no, 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 that, that's not what's going on here. Circumcision isn't what saved you back then, follow me. Circumcision is the sign that your faith was placed in the Redeemer who would save you. That, that's a very strong difference. Circumcision doesn't save you. It shows you have faith in the one who would save you. The faith is what caused you to be saved, not the action or the work. For us, this would be like a person saying, well, I prayed a prayer when I was eight years old, and that prayer is what saved me. Paul would say, nah, not really. The prayer, hear me, it's a very important part of your process, but the prayer was a visible manifestation of the faith that you had. That faith is the vehicle for Christ's righteousness to get credit to you. Pray the prayer. That's what we've been talking about all through Romans. Please don't assume you're saved if you've never asked God to save you. But understand the faith to ask is what saves you, not the asking. So baptism, church membership, baby dedications, communion, all of those things are great. They still don't save you though. Faith is the only thing. Those things show your faith. They do not grant your salvation. If you're still asking, why are we pressing so hard on this? I get it. If anything but faith stands in our minds as the reason for our justification, we will believe us deciding to do that thing or be that thing helps save us. And that will erode the blessing of, oh, how blessed it is to have your sins not counted against you. It will erode the ability for you to see the full weight of Jesus' love for you. God made the plan. Jesus humbly carried out the plan. And the Holy Spirit opens your eyes that there even was a plan. All of this was a gift and a blessing, hear me, to show you that you are loved and that God cares for you. So why we go over and over and over again and again and again is, is to say, don't try and take credit for it. Don't try and feel proud of what you've done. Instead, let your heart fully be given to the audacious love of God that he gave you. Just let it sink in. You are his child, and he went that far for you to save you. If he went that far to save you, here's the beauty too. You can take it to the bank that he's not going to let you go. That's a, that's a comfort to our hearts. He moved that far to love you and grab a hold of you. He'll never turn his back on you. Though the enemy whispers accusations of he regrets, that, he regrets saving you, he, re, he doesn't. He moved that much to show you his love and he'll never, ever forsake you. Paul then begins to repaint Abraham as a picture of faith instead of a picture of works. And, and so I'm thinking about this, we're, we're gonna go this way too fast. We're gonna go through the tail end. But there's, there's a, a beauty and a benefit to see models of faith before us. So we can see things to, like, is my life headed in that way? Not to earn, again, but there's a modern belief that we decide what faithfulness looks like, that we decide what the, no, no, no. 
it's helpful for us to look at the, the life of Abraham just to see a good example of faith. So when asking the question, what, is a, what does a life of real faith look like? Well, there's a couple markers that we'll pull from the backside of this text. The first is faith looks like believing in God even in hopeless situations. This is the first one that we see of Abraham. Real faith trusts in God even when it seems, to, to, there, when it seems like there's no reason to when it seems that there's no reason to. Unbelievers walk through life with no hope and without God. But those who believe in God, they they have God with them through the fire and the difficulty and everything comes. This means the promises of God we hold to even when it seems foolish to do so. Abraham believed God and that God would fulfill his promises even when the text says, dude was almost dead. He goes, no, he's he's still going to give me a kid. He believes him. He trusts God. And his faith means that even when circumstance shows that, 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 that things don't make sense, he believes God is not a liar. He will fulfill every promise that he's ever made. The second, faith looks like something that does not weaken in circumstance. Verse 19 shows Abraham and his wife again were almost dead. They were old. Old, old, like, dude, come on, you're not going to have a kid. It's not going to happen. And yet, the circumstance of their age did not erode their confidence. Right? Every year that goes by, every month that went by, Abraham, man, come on, dude, you ain't going to have a kid. The word of God stands stronger than what I understand. I will have a kid. Right? See, often you'll see someone who have uh, this, this faith that seems to sprout up really quickly. Think of, of the parable, the seeds and the sowers. It sprouts up. But then over time, the faith begins to weaken or it erodes away. And it seems to be a flame that just kind of, uh, that, that, that just goes out. As soon as the trial gets big, it's a flame that just goes away. This isn't real saving faith. Faith is not like a fog that burns off in the afternoon. Paul isn't saying that we can never have any doubt and no room to, to, to struggle. That's not what he's saying at all. But if a person seems to have faith and then they walk away from that faith or it erodes all the way away, no longer trusting in God or believing in God, that faith was never genuine. Believer, your faith is meant to grow, not plateau. That's the one thing that all of our hearts, I hope that we would hear that. If your faith is just stagnated, it's meant to grow. It's not meant to decline. It's not meant to plateau. The God who has done all of that for you to credit a righteousness to you that was not even yours and has gone that far to enter human history to save you, your faith in that God should grow as you see his holiness grow and your sinfulness grow and know he still loves me even though all of that is true. It should grow. Third, this faith gives glory to God and it, goes, and it grows in confidence in who God is. Verse 20 Often a life will give God the glory for the moment. God be the glory. Yep. It's all Jesus. And then that fades away. To where a person gives glory to their life, their plans, their 401k, their pursuits, their wisdom. With a difficult thing right now where a person begins to shift to give glory to the wisdom of the age, which James calls demonic, A person shifts to give their glory to the culture. True saving faith grows in its awareness and appetite for God getting glory, not anything else. 
And that faith seeks to glorify God more and more as it goes. Friends, my hope is that our hearts would look to see God get more glory. Think even Jesus teaching us to pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's going, God, help me put you in your right spot. You're not even with me. You are the God of glory over all of creation who sustains all of this and understands even when I'm when I don't, Lord, Father, help me to keep your name in the right place and help other people to put your name in the right place as well. I seek for you to be glorified, not me. This is a mark of true faith. Ultimately, this faith looks like believing with your whole heart in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And it puts the full weight of your hope into Jesus for your justification. Faith grows as you go. doesn't mean you don't hit any speed bumps. And God's glory becomes our concern as we go as well. The question, again, not to press you into works, is just to honestly ask, hey, is your faith doing that right now? Is your faith growing? Is your desire for the glory of God growing? Or is that just kind of evaporated away? It's a great thing to think through and just ask for help as we worship and close today. God, I haven't paid very much attention to your glory. Oh Lord, I repent. I've actually sought my glory a whole lot more. Thank you again that you begin to preach the gospel to yourself. Thank you again that the, the righteousness of your son is still credited into my account. Help me to with eyes wide open live for your glory. Help me, my, my faith, incre- we, we've got to wrestle with this. Be honest enough to go like, man, I just don't know when I've cared about your glory last. God, realign my heart. You don't have to be worried he's angry with you. God, help, help my walk to match the beauty of what you've done. I've already earned everything. My eyes just are not looking in the right place right now. As we end today, I mean, I would just invite you to renew that belief in our Father. What's that look like? I think, I think it just looks like prayer through what we're doing. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you did all the work. Lord, thank you that I didn't have to earn my way. The hope is that our hearts would be stirred by the Spirit tangibly to feel that blessing that we talked about before. What a blessing it is to have sins covered. What a blessing it is to have a righteousness credited us that we didn't have, uh, that we didn't earn. The hope is that we would feel that that your heart would be stirred by understanding God knows exactly who you are. Not who you present to the world. God knows who you actually are to the depths of your core. He knows it and he knows what you've done. And yet your faith in Christ allows you to stand before him clean and fully loved. He isn't mad. He doesn't regret adopting you. The God of the universe loves you fully and will never let you go. And he sings over you joyfully. This is your truth. Renew your heart in that today. There are seasons that come where we begin to believe that we do the work. We earn our way. We prove our way. We we do it. As you take communion today, again, renew your belief. Jesus paid it all. You get to be a son or daughter of the God most high and have peace in him and there is no work for you to do. That's what you remember at the table. The work is done.
There's a place prepared for you. Just come and eat. Come and see that the broken body of God and the poured out blood of Jesus is all the work that needs to be done if you've tried to labor so much. Set down your tools and come to the table and eat. Praise the God who is worthy of it. And I also offer you the moment, if your faith hasn't been placed in this Christ, maybe today is the day. I hope you sense we've been relentless in this through this series. Call out to the Lord, Jesus, I need you to save me. I want to believe in you for the problem of my salvation. Maybe today is the day that one of us here stops striving and your heart finally finds rest in Jesus and understands that he is more than enough for you. Hear this. You can stop striving. You exhausted? Anxious? Beat up? He offers you rest. The whole world demands perfection of you and more of you. God brings perfection to you and says you don't have to do anything else if you put your faith in him. And the hope is that you would lean into that. If your faith has not been placed in Jesus, that you just come and taste and see that he's good. I'd be happy to pray with you if you have any questions about that. But my deep hope for us is that we would never assume that we are the Lord's if we've never asked to be his. And then if we are his, that our hearts would be stirred in the beauty of that. Come and taste and see. Man, you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion today. You don't have to be a member to take. The text says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Would you hear that? If you've been striving so much, this is my body, it's for you. You don't, you don't have to break yours. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming to the brothers and sisters around you into your own heart that my Savior has died and done the work, and I get to come celebrate and enjoy and rest in his work. My hope is that your heart would be stirred to that, that the beauty of what Jesus has done would be made more real to you today. Would you stand? Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would draw near to us today. We need you. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you come. Spirit of the living God who shows us the Son. Let us see that it is finished. You've done the work, that it is complete, that nothing left is required in us while the whole world demands more. bring perfection to us. Lord, I pray that we would see that. Lord, stir in our hearts the beauty of Jesus. Stir in my heart the sufficiency of Christ. I'll pray for every work that we think that has justified us, that we would lay it down. 
that we would accept the beauty of your son and your righteousness. Lord, help us for this moment just to lay down our labors and rest in you, Lord. Let spirit come. Overwhelm our hearts with the blessing of forgiveness. I pray that it would be done. God, be glorified here. Holy Spirit, draw hearts to you. Lord, we just ask that you do your work in us. Our hearts would not walk in and out a Sunday without being transformed by your goodness. Come and change us, work in us, stir in us the beauty of who you are. 